Hello and welcome to Talking New Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Uretina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. In this episode, we're looking again at ocular oncology and have a fantastic panel to explore choroidal nevi in daily practice, looking at imaging, follow-ups, and the moles system. First, though, we have two webinars I wanted to tell you about in June, both of which are sure to be of value to the retina community. On Thursday, the 23rd of June, an educational webinar on diabetes and vascular disease. Eduardo Midena and Renier Shingleman have organised a faculty of international key opinion leaders to tell us what is new in the area around the world. This faculty includes Jennifer Sun, Abu Ahmed El-Azrar, Noemi Lois and Raffaele Parazzani. There's a lot to be learned about where we are with diabetes and vascular disease. So this is a great opportunity to get the highlights in just one hour from 8pm CEST on Thursday, the 23rd of June. Next, on Wednesday, just less than a week later, on the 29th, we have another case club. This time, Baran Bodagi and Carlos Pavesio will be hosting. We'll see six cases presented by an international faculty of younger colleagues. Each case will be discussed by some really well-known names in the field of uveitis, including Janet Davis, Alfredo Aldan, Monsef Karala, Sophia Andrudi, Aniruda Agarwal and Sarah Tuhami. It promises to be a really interesting evening of case discussion from 8pm CEST on Wednesday, the 29th of June. Again, you can sign up to both of these events on the Uretina website. All right, time for our expert discussion and chairing is Professor Heinrich Hyman of the Liverpool University Hospital. Joining him are faculty Professor Bertil D'Amato from the University of Oxford and Moorfields, Dr. Rumana Hussein from the University of Liverpool, Dr. Ivona Rosbon Kubiak from Poznan University Hospital, and Dr. Jose Caminal from Belvice University Hospital and the University of Barcelona. Heinrich, it is great to have you back. You are very welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be back and welcome all listeners to this ocular oncology podcast. Choroidal nevi are the most common benign intraocular tumor. They are a common finding during routine examinations of the ocular fundus and often cause confusion in retinal practice. Due to the increased use of retinal imaging and optometry and general ophthalmology, there has been a sharp rise in the number of referrals to ocular oncology centers over the past years, without an increase in the incidence of malignant uveal melanoma. In this podcast, we would like to discuss the day-to-day management of these lesions, which imaging is useful, and when to refer the patient to an ocular oncology center. But let us start by going back to the basics. Bertel D'Amato, can you tell us what actually is a choroidal nevus from the pathology point of view, and what distinguishes it from a choroidal melanoma? Hello. A uh, choroidal nevus is a benign tumor, which um, does not grow very much, if at all, after the age of around 25 or 30. And um, genetically, it's got mutations in GNAQ and GNA11, and that's about it. So it's not life-threatening. Whereas a malignant melanoma has not only GNAQ and GNA11 mutations, but other mutations, which give it the capacity to invade surrounding tissues, to grow, quite dramatically, even to grow extraocularly. And if there's a loss of chromosome 3 or gains in chromosome 8 or 
loss of BAP1 function, there's also the, the capacity to metastasize to the liver and other organs. So Bertel, how common is a choroidal nevus and what are the risks for malignant transformation of a nevus? Nevi are found in about 6 or 8% of individuals. So they're very common. But choroidal melanomas occur only in about 6 individuals per million per year. So they're very rare. So if you have a patient with a nevus, what would be the risk for them to develop a melanoma? What do you tell them? If there's no suspicious features, if it's small, flat, featureless, then the, according to Arun Singh in Cleveland, the chances of malignant transformation are supposed to be less than one in 8,000 per year. Thank you, Bertel. Um, let's go on to the imaging. Rumana uh, Hussein in Liverpool, you perform imaging routine on every patient. So which imaging um, systems do you use and what are you looking for? Thanks, Heinrich. Well, I, I, just to clarify, all the patients that come through the department in Liverpool get a full history and thorough examination first. It's just important to mention that the imaging techniques can miss things like extraocular extension. It can be a bit misleading. So I would never base anything just on imaging alone. But certainly all the imaging techniques that we use after that are based on the risk factors for melanoma, really. So the SHIELDS group in about 20 years ago wrote a number of risk factors that we're looking for in clinical examination, which is kind of aided by the imaging techniques that we use. So subretinal fluid is probably uh, one of the most important risk factors. And OCT, we use the Heidelberg OCT in Liverpool um, to try and look for subclinical subretinal fluid if you can't see it on clinical examination. Uh, Lipofusin is another risk factor, uh, very important. It can be quite difficult to see that orange pigment on top of a background of orange choroid. And so your fundus autofluorescence really helps you in that respect. And so every patient gets an autofluorescence. Lipofusin is very, very brightly hyper-autofluorescent on the uh, fundus imaging. And so that's really helpful. It's just worth mentioning that in amelanotic tumors, glypofusin is brown, but it still hyper-autofluoresces on the autofluorescence. So again, that can really help you differentiate between the different types of pigment overlying some of these lesions. We also look at the risk factors in terms of size, basal diameter, ultrasound thickness. Uh, ultrasound will really help with that. Uh, and also the ultrasound will help you look at other things like the internal reflectivity, which is reflective of the how densely packed those cells are, and also whether there's little pulsations and vascular uh, pulsations within that tumor itself. And I guess the final risk factor that the Shields Group talk about is vision. Uh, they've modified things a little bit uh, in the 2018 kind of updated guidelines. Uh, we used to call visual symptoms a risk factor. It can be a bit nonspecific. A lot of these patients come in asymptomatic or, you know, flashing lights, floaters. They happen to get a fundus check. I think the whole point about symptoms is things that are directly uh, from the tumor itself. So vision that's dropped because of the tumor, not because of something else. So those are the imaging techniques that we use. We use wide field um, photos on the Optos for all our patients. It gives us a very clear margin of every border, autofluorescence and OCT and ultrasound. What about uh, lesions touching the disc that used to be a risk factor? Is that correct? 
So the old guidelines from 2000 from the Shield Group did mention touching the disc. Certainly the 2018 guidelines have dropped that. And that's mainly because actually touching the disc is not a risk factor for melanoma. A nevus near the disc is still a nevus. It just happens to be near the disc. The only reason why the disc is important is that if it is definitely a melanoma, there is a risk of extraocular bed, but it's got nothing to do with whether it's a nevus or a melanoma. So we don't use that as a diagnostic type of consideration, really. So we have these six basic risk factors, but where does documented growth come into this? I think documented growth is hugely important. The key word, I think, is documented. Uh, I think it doesn't really count if the optician didn't see it last year or the picture that was scribbled on a diagram last year looks a bit different. I think that's why having these imaging techniques is hugely important at baseline. I think all the patients need a fundus photo that shows each margin of the tumor clearly so that you can see whether there really is documented growth and you can objectively tell whether that lesion has changed or not. If it has changed, I would probably take things a bit more seriously. So if they have a, a risk factor or two, but that it's definitely grown, I'd probably give it a bit more weighting. Whereas if it has a few risk factors, but it hasn't grown for five or 10 years, again, that will skew me in the other direction. I'll be a bit more reassured by that. Thank you very much, Romana. Um, Ivona Rospon-Kubiak, uh, within the Uretina uh, community, not everyone has easy access to imaging. So let's say you have an old school practice in the countryside with just a slit lamp and a 90-day opter lens. Do you have any clinical pointers for these members of the community, what to look out for if you're really left just to ophthalmoscopy? What, what are the most important risk factors and what are you looking for? Well, there are some obvious clinical pointers at risk factors. That would be the presence of the orange pigment over the lesion, the largest basal diameter bigger than three to four disc diameters, the presence of subretinal fluid that could be detected clinically, and so-called dome-shaped or elevated appearance of the lesion. And the absence of drusen's and the macular location of the lesion, and also when, the, when it appears in a previously healthy retina could be also a sign of worry. In any case, I believe that the nevi should be referred always when the orange pigment appears, when the growth has been documented, and when there is a visual loss. Ideally, the, the regular surveillance of the nevi should be based on photo documentation. This is really important, but of course not every ophthalmic practice would be equipped with the digital fundus camera. However, there are some possibilities of the low-key photo documentation that pay, became recently available on the market. Among them, slip lamp adapters or cameras or handheld fundus cameras may represent perhaps the most reasonable options. One has to remember, though, that there is no standardized procedure in which the photographs are collected and stored in, uh, with the help of these instruments and the quality of the pictures would be substantially lower. And uh, if you look at these lesions in clinical practice, are there any inadverted commas positive uh, adverted commas risk factors? So what you, gives you a bit of reassurance that this is an old lesion? Uh, definitely the presence of drusens and retinal degeneration over the lesion that could be detected on OCT as they both indicate the chronic character of the lesion. However, sometimes drusen could be mistaken with an orange pigment, as been already mentioned, specifically if the tumor is amelanotic, because the orange pigment may look black over an amelanotic tumor. <clears throat> a halo, um, a yellowish uh, circle around, so-called circle around um, the melanocytic lesion, was considered to be a safe feature, but uh, no more according to the latest publication from the Shields group. Uh, however, in my experience, these lesions are rare. I haven't seen quite many of them. 
Thank you. I mean, in daily practice, the most common lesion would be a small nevus with drusen and none of these risk factors. That is what we see most commonly. So what would your recommendation be? How would we follow these lesions in daily practice? Would it be okay to discharge them to an optician? What's your opinion on that? I believe the observation should be lifelong for the patients. Once a year, it's okay if it's a photo visit to me. It, it's fair enough. Uh, but I always double check that the patient would be followed up elsewhere. Uh, it's almost clearly impossible to follow up every lesion that is referred for a specialist opinion in a tertiary referral center. So I personally often discharge the patients if there are no risk features, really. Uh, but always double check the diameter of the lesion and its appearance on the OCT. What happens in Poland, we don't have the optician or optometrists, so many, so the patients would go back to the referring ophthalmologist equipped with the photo documentation from the last visit. Um, Ivona, you've been co-author on a very fascinating paper published in ophthalmology on actually fatal small melanoma. So what is the smallest fatal melanoma um, that you've seen in that series? Can you, can you sort of enlighten us on, on how small they can be before they metastasize? Really, it has been a very uh, interesting uh, study and a fascinating work. It was in international Sari, and 10 ocular oncology centers from Europe participated in it. We were one of them. Uh, patients' data were submitted via secured website too with photo documentation, so then double-checked if they met the entry criteria, which were the tumor largest basal diameter less than 9 millimeters and thickness less than 3 millimeters and of course the presence of metastasis. Finally, 45 patients were identified, uh, 31 of them were treated immediately and 14 were uh, observed for growth before treatment. And this appeared for 12 of those lesions in the median time of seven months. Uh, all patients developed metastasis in the median time of four and a half years. Uh, the smallest lesions that metastasized were 3.0, 3.4, 4.8, and, and 5.0 in largest basal diameter. So the conclusion from the paper is that probably that 3 millimeters in largest basal diameter represent the cutoff for the malignant growth. All observed lesions, lesions were T1 uh, according to the recent NM classification. Uh, so it was Another conclusion from that paper is that the risk for metastasis based on the largest basal diameter is accordance with another study that validated the PNM system. And five years risk of metastasis per millimeter of largest basal diameter would be 0% uh, for lesion up to 3 millimeters, 8% for lesion from 3.1 to 6 millimeters, and 8% for lesion uh, from 6.1 to 9 millimeters. Thank you, Ivana. That's very interesting. So obviously in smaller lesions, the risk is smaller, but it's not zero. And uh, uh, Romana has found in our studies in Liverpool that actually in small melanoma, less than two millimeters, up to 20% already have the changes that Bertel mentioned, the monosomy three. So thank you very much for this information. So the beauty about the RETA community is that we can zap around in Europe and going from one end, from Poland to another end, to Spain, uh, Jose Caminal, um, from what you've heard about the risk factors, the imaging, the follow-up, um, you work in a completely different healthcare system. Do you do anything differently? What's your opinion on what you've heard so far and what do you do in daily practice? In daily practice, uh, basically we do mostly the same that Ivona and Rumana, very close that they, they are doing. 
but I would like to to see uh, to say that uh, we found very useful in our regular practice to use uh, the ultrasound with uh, 20 megahertz probe that gives a lot of information of the tumors, uh, structural information as well as uh, the flickering that we we give more importance to the flickering than we can see in most of, uh, of our uveal melanomas. We found as well very useful the OptoMap, the, the, the system, the white field system, uh, because uh, we can use for to take measures and compare and for the follow-up is very important. But uh, I think that there is one thing that I would like to emphasize that it's important or it can be useful to adjust the two channels of the OptoMap. Uh, you, you can adjust the, the red channel and you can see very clearly the base of the tumors and it's very useful for to take the measurement of these lesions and for the follow-up is very interesting at that point. And recently we, we found very useful the use of the, of the sweat source OCT and the angio OCT associated. Firstly, because we can uh, make axial cuts that are very useful to see the intratumoral structure or the intratumoral architecture, uh, and we can see in the case of the nevus or melanomas, we can we can see very compact or very dense structures, and in the melanoma perhaps it's more heterogeneous. We can see some defects on this architecture. We can see lagoons, uh, we can see vessels, we can see alteration of loss of the choriocapillaries, we can see uh, RP uh, uh, alterations, desestructuration of the retina, uh, as well as, of course, the subretinal fluid with the Jaggi photoreceptors that are very useful. Secondly, with the OCT, we can measure the lesions. In fact, we have done a, a work in which we, we compare the ultrasound and the OCT in doing these measurements. And I think that up to 2.5 millimeters in height and 8 millimeters in diameter, the OCT is very useful. You can put uh, very, in a very accurate form, the pointers to measure the lesions. And I think that is more accurate in this region, the OCT in respect to the ultrasound. And thirdly, uh, I think that the uh, angio-OCT is very useful to see the, the vessels. In the, in the case of the Nivae, we can see a very fine network of vessels in general. And in the case of the uveal melanoma, we can see thick and large vessels that uh, can give us the clue to make the one of the clues to make the diagnosis. Well, thank you, Jose. That's that's very very interesting. We do find measurement with OCT in small lesions is much much better and more sensitive than ultrasound. So that's a very good advice. Ruman already mentioned the amelanotic lesions, and I think you published a paper on this. So how frequent is that, and and how do they differ in the imaging? Yes, uh, in our practice, the melanotic melanoma is quite rare. Uh, I think that the same for you. Based in our paper in melanotic melanoma, we can see, especially by angio-CT, this more prominent vascularization than respect to the uh, pigmented melanoma. Uh, and we can see very well these large and thick vessels. I think that uh, in reference to these uh, melanotic melanomas, we must be very aware of flat lesions uh, with a mixed pattern of pigmented areas and a melanotic areas 
that I think that these are very dangerous uh, tumors that usually are very large in, and spread along the eye and very thin. And uh, you can always, in these patients, to rule out the possibility to have an extraocular extension because are diffuse melanomas with a high propensity to go to outside of the, of the eye. So in these cases, I recommend always a very accurate ultrasonography to discard any possibility to, of an extra, extra scleral extension. And I think that in these, in these tumors, it's also mandatory to rule out the corneal metastasis. It's a big deal between the melanoma and the metastasis. And in these cases, perhaps in, sometimes we uh, think that it's necessary an intraocular biopsy to, to discard these, these tumors. Okay. So let's say we have a lesion, a small lesion, but we have several risk factors already, pre already present. Let's say it's got orange pigment, it's got a low reflectivity on ultrasound, it's got fluid. And basically, by clinical experience, we think this is a small melanoma. But very often, these lesions are detected near the fovea or the disc. So then you're in a difficult position because if you treat them, there's a very high risk of losing vision. On the other hand, you cannot tell the patient 100% this is a melanoma. And um, the patient would ask, but what if I leave it? And you say the risk for metastasis is about 10%. What would be the risk if you just wait and watch? Um, you um, published some papers on uh, metastasis of melanomas in these small lesions. What's your opinion on, on this dilemma between early treatment versus observation? Yeah, uh, we, we recently have published a paper in Clinical Experimental Ophthalmology of last year uh, in which we evaluated the specific and overall survival in 75 patients with the small choroidal lesions, uh, the T1A category, who underwent the initial observation until the tumor grow was detected, and then we promptly treated these patients mostly with brachytherapy. Uh, these, these lesions has uh, a very uh, median of uh, five out of eight risk factors present, in, in the moment of the WC for the first time. And these factors were symptoms, supratinal fluid, orange pigment, acoustic hollowness that was present in 73% of the lesions. And the median of the follow-up of these patients was very, very large, 81 months, almost seven years. And the median tumor thickness was 2.2 and the median basal diameter was 8.5. And as you have said, the most lesions were located close to the, to the optic nerve or, or to the fovea, that is a bad localization. And uh, when we detected the, the growth of the lesions at a median of 17 months, and we performed uh, brachytherapy in 96% of, of these patients. So when we analyze this, uh, this series of patients, uh, we see almost 7% of local recurrence after brachytherapy that we treat with inoculation. This is, a, I think, that a quite reasonable uh, percentage of recurrence uh, due to the localization of these tumors. You know that this is very tricky to treat these patients with brachytherapy for the, that localization, the posterior localization. And the most important was that the melanoma-specific survival was, was 98% at 5 years and 92% at 10 and 15 years, so a, a very low uh, survival. 
So I think that if we compare this survival with other survival like the work by Sobrin et al, the, at the Bascom Palmer, uh, they found in patients that wait for the treatment until they, they saw the, the growth of the tumors, they found a 96% of survival, very close to our survival, uh, of we compared with the several sets of validations of the American Joint Cancer Commission on the T1A uh, patients, the survival is about 96% and 97% uh, as well. So I think that in my modest opinion, I think that the existing data uh, suggests that the mortality risk for uh, this kind of uh, small coronal melanoma located in the posteriorly or close to the optic nerve or the macula is quite low and it seems that uh, delayed treatment doesn't not increase the mortality uh, in these cases and all we know that the treatment related morbidity is high so I think that we must talk broadly with our patients and balance very accurately the risk beneficial ratio in these in these patients. Well, thank you very much, Jose. That was very useful information. Um, let's go back to Bertel. When I started working with you at the Liverpool Ocular Oncology Unit that you set up many years ago, about 15 years ago, the opinion was uh, treatment of melanoma, the horse has bolted. Whatever we do, we can't stop metastasis in any case. So uh, it's an ongoing discussion now. Should we treat these small melanomas early or later? What's your opinion on that? I think we should um, share any uncertainty with the patient as best we can because to some extent everything is a gamble by gamble we mean that we have to make rational decisions with incomplete information so there are some patients who want to keep their vision and to remain under observation other patients want immediate treatment without any delay and other patients want a biopsy. So that's what I do. I give them the choice between observation, treatment, and biopsy. And uh, what is your take on that? Do you think an ophthalmologist or ocular oncologist can save lives? I do. I do. I think that, um, especially with small tumors, even with monosomy 3, the survival seems to be good. Now, whether it's because of lead time bias... And we need to wait an extra 20, 30 years to see what happens to those patients. Or whether we need to, whether the treatment is actually preventing metastasis in some patients, that remains to be seen with further very long-term studies. But there's some tenuous evidence that older patients have got a bigger tumors with more epithelioid cells, a higher prevalence of, of monosomy 3, and a higher mortality from metastasis. And that suggests that a delay in treatment in some patients causes metastatic death. Thank you. Um, going back to the risk factor assessment, uh, we know the six risk factors, but two of them already are based on ultrasound. And we all know that ultrasound machines are very, very sensitive. Uh, sometimes they're not available. The examination technique is challenging. You need an experienced examiner for this. So. You developed a system that does not require ultrasound for the risk factor assessment and uh, for referral. Can you tell us about it, please? That's right. So far, we have been speaking about ophthalmologists 
in very well-equipped centers and with the expertise and the equipment for good ultrasonography in very small, thin tumors. But many ophthalmologists and most optometrists don't have these facilities. And therefore, uh, when I returned to the United Kingdom from the United States, I was asked what the problem was, and I heard about all these massive numbers of patients being referred to hospital with suspected melanoma. I made that my research project, and I came up with these five indicators. Mushroom shape, orange pigment, large size, enlargement, and subretinal fluid. And those letters make up moles, which is an English lay term for nevi as it turns out. So each of these five indicators has a score between zero and two. And these are added up. If the total score is zero, it's a common nevus with almost a zero chance of malignant growth. If the score is one, then it's a low risk nevus, which requires lightweight monitoring, so to speak. If the score is two, it's a high risk nevus which requires multimodal imaging with good equipment. And if the score is more than two, if it's three or more, then it's a probable melanoma until proved otherwise and needs to be seen by an expert. And if that score is confirmed, then the patient needs to be seen by an ocular oncologist to make a, a definitive diagnosis and to give treatment. So with a mold system, obviously, the initial concern for me would be, do I miss a fatal melanoma or do I miss a melanoma that needs treatment to save the eye? So has it been tested and verified in practice? It has. Kelsey Relofs at Moorfields looked at 451 patients who had been treated for choroidal melanoma. And only one out of those had a mold score of less than three. And Lamis Al-Harbi and others at Moorfields looked at another 222 patients attending a Nevis clinic. And there were 81 tumors diagnosed by the ocular oncologist as melanoma. And all those had a score of three or more. Then there were 141 tumors diagnosed as nevi by the experts and 135 had a mole score of less than three. There were only six discrepancies and I think ocular oncologists would argue amongst themselves as to whether those six cases were nevus or melanoma. On conferences and in our referrals letter actually this mole system gains more and more traction so if a listener is interested in, where do they have to look on the web to find out more information about it? Well, the, these, these papers have been published by Al-Harbi et al., Relofs et al., and there's a paper that's just about to come out in I, which has a full description of moles. And for um, ophthalmologists and optometrists in the United Kingdom, the mole system has been incorporated into guidelines of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists and the College of Optometrists. So it's all there on the internet. Well, Bertel, thank you very much and thank all participants for their participation in this. And uh, back to you, Jonathan.
Well, Heinrich, uh, thank you so much. And thank you uh, to our faculty, of course, Rumana, Ivona, Jose and Bertil. That is it for this episode. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions to podcast at uretina.org. If you liked this episode, there are lots more in the feed. So please subscribe, rate, share with colleagues. And if you had a moment to review the podcast, we would really appreciate it. Our next episode, we'll return to imaging with Dr. Stella Vujasevic in Italy and Dr. Bianca Gerandas in Austria, chairing the expert discussion. So don't miss that. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you for listening. Until next time on Talking New Retina.